Who's the most, uh, the most famous or most important person uh, you've ever had like a personal interaction with? I, I, once, uh, I once flew on an airplane uh, with the late 60s and early 80s rock group Sly and the Family Stone. You know Sly and the Family Stone. Anybody know that? Sly and, uh, um, you know, Woodstock fame. Uh, uh, everyday people? Ring a bell? Yeah, good, good. Hot fun in the summertime, right? Uh, it was a commercial flight from Cleveland, Ohio to Knoxville, Tennessee. I had been spending, a, uh, I think, the summer with, uh, with my dad. And um, they had performed in uh, Cleveland the night before, and they were to perform in Knoxville uh, the next, that night, the night of the, of the, the flight. And, and boarding the plane... I, I walked right past, you know, they, they had, you know, the important people board first, you know, as you know how that goes. And, and uh, so they boarded, and then, but I, when I was getting on the plane, I w- walked right past Sly Stone, the, the leader of the group, close enough to touch him. He was on the aisle. And, uh, you know, one of their, one of their song, one of their hit songs was, I want to take you higher. Uh, but getting a look at Sly as I walked past, I could see that he could not possibly have been higher. That, and that was before we took off, you know. He was, uh, you know, I mean, a sly in the family stone. Sly in the family stoned. He was, you know, stone plastered, sloshed three sheets to the wind, whatever you want to call it. But it was obvious. And, and you know what? It was obvious to the uh, Knoxville News Sentinel's uh, concert reviewer, too, who complained in the paper, whenever it was, I think it was maybe on the Sunday, I don't can't remember if it came out Sunday or Monday, but, but there was a review of the concert, and the reviewer complained that, uh, that Sly was, uh, he was impaired at, to the point where the, the Knoxville audience, were, they were ripped off and with, the, with the concert. Anyway, they were in the front of the plane, and I was in the back, and as and as close as I got to Sly and the Family Stone was just gaping at the, as I walked, as I walked by. And in uh, in Knoxville, uh, watching the passengers as the passengers disembarked, uh, my mom at first mistook one of the band members uh, for me, and she was temporarily alarmed at what my dad had allowed to become of me. And you know, over the summer. Uh, but that, you know, the brevity and the, um, you know, superficiality of that, you know, that little brush with celebrity uh, didn't keep me from bragging about it to all my friends. Guess who was on the plane with me? <laughs> Guess who was on the plane? Don't you think, don't you think more of me now? Well, that, that was, that's, that was kind of pathetic, so... I've got a better one than that. It was a, it was also at an airport, DFW airport in uh, in Dallas, uh, probably around 1977. I was there to pick up a friend very late. He's coming in on a flight, a very late flight. I can't remember. It was after midnight, like midnight one, two, something like that. And there at the and the the airport was practically abandoned. You know, if you ever been to pick up a real late flight, you know, at any, almost any airport, it's just almost nobody there and but there at the luggage carousel was 
was someone who looked very familiar, and I kept stealing glances, you know. I was pro I, well, I say stealing glances. I was probably staring, uh, but, uh, but I, I kept looking, and I was fairly convinced uh, I knew who it was. So I worked up my nerve, and I, I approached her and said, uh, I said, excuse me, but are, are you Dolly Parton? And uh, this, this was back in Dolly's big hair days, you know, so uh, th that's what I call her now, just Dolly. Now you, uh, but this, uh, this lady at the airport, she didn't, have any, she didn't have the big hair, you know, like she used to have, and, and she was a surprisingly tiny little thing. I, she was just a, just, a, just a tiny person, so I wasn't 100% sure, but, but it was her. And, uh, and she was the nicest person you could imagine. Uh, she gave no impression whatsoever of being bothered by, you know, that someone would approach her and talk to her. And, and uh, she, asked, she asked me questions as well as answering questions. Uh, we talked about East Tennessee, and we talked about country and bluegrass music, and, and we talked about the Kaz Walker show that she used to be on in Knoxville, you know, six in the morning or something like that. You know, you'd turn on the TV, and there's Dolly live on the Kaz Walker show, and and, you know, we talked about all, all that, and we probably talked at least 15 minutes. And, and uh, you know, by the time she finally left, we were practically exchanging Christmas cards, you know. It was, and, but, bef listen, before, before we could actually exchange addresses, um, her luggage showed up at the carousel, and she went her way, and her, her personal assistant, who he had, that's what he had, a personal assistant was what it struck me as that took her luggage. And you better believe that I brag to all my friends about my personal relationship with Dolly Parton. <laughs> I mean, we were pals, you know, friends. In fact, I may have told some people that it was she who tapped me on the shoulder and said, aren't you Chris Bunn? <laughs> Well, that's a little less pathetic, so I'll go you one better. It's not pathetic at all, it, and it's absolutely glorious. It, it's, it's, it's truly glorious with respect to the true importance of the person, uh, and it's completely glorious with respect to the depth and the reality of the relationship and there's no need to exaggerate at all. In 1974, I entered into a, uh, a personal and real relationship with God, who is, the, you know this probably, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Um, who has always existed. Who doesn't need anything else to exist. And, and entered into a real, real uh, relationship uh, with his son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the whole world. And the, and the relationships has... Over the years, it's had its ups and downs. It, it really has. 
It's had its strong seasons and its dry seasons. Now the, now the downs and the, and the dry seasons, they've, they've, been, uh, they've been because of me, not because of him. Uh, but what began as an acquaintance, and it really did become, it began as an acquaintance, at least on my part. On my part, it began as an acquaintance. Uh, not on his, because I learned later that he loved me from the very beginning. He loved me from the very beginning. So it didn't begin as an acquaintance on his part, but it did become, begin as an acquaintance on my part. And But what began as an acquaintance has, you know, with the ups and downs, has over time uh, trended toward the, uh, the deeper and, and the closer. Um, and beyond that, it's going to grow deeper and closer still. And I know that, I know that, because in the new heavens and the new earth, everyone who is in relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ will experience a new level and a new depth in that relationship that really, in my opinion, was simply impossible. That's not just my opinion. I think I can make a case today that it was just simply you know, that what's coming for me in terms of my relationship with God is, is more than what was even possible as long as I lived on in this fallen body and in this fallen, and as long as I live in this fallen world. Our main passage these last few weeks has been Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And that took us to Romans 8. We had a passage of Romans 8. We looked at the passage in 2 Peter 3. But here's our backbone passage, Revelation 20, uh, 21, first eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, <coughs> excuse me, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, 
Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I, I set out several weeks ago, you take that down, uh, to trace three themes through this passage, uh, which are really three features of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, which theologians call the eternal state, which I've been calling uh, the, just think it maybe communicates a little better, the same thing, I've been calling it the forever future, the part of the future that's forever, that lasts forever. And the first theme was justice. The forever future will be characterized by justice. And, you know, we won't go over that, all that territory again, but, but it's justice in all human relationships on an individual basis. It's justice in all human society. It's justice <coughs> in the final judgment on evil and sin and the confinement of evil, both human and angelic, uh, in the lake of fire. Uh, the second theme was renewal. There are like three weeks on that, but, uh, but the, it was renewal. Renewal from the bodies of the redeemed in resurrection. You know, so that those in, in heaven now are not, you know, they still are looking forward to that. Resurrection as a great event you know, this, uh, that's coming in the future. The redemption of our bodies, the Bible calls it. But the renewal of our, and as I said, better than they ever were. Not just a restoration to, to what we were, you know, what we are now. Not just a restoration to what we were at 15 or 20 or 25, whenever you're at your peak. But better than they were. And the renewal, not only of our bodies, but of the creation. Of the creation itself. Including, including the earth. That's why we went to Romans chapter 8, which states it more, uh, you know, more, more clearly, perhaps. And today we come to the third theme, and I'm calling it uh, fellowship. And in our central passage, a passage we just read, it most clearly seen, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And you see it, in a, that's like in a corporate sense, you see it more in an individual sense, verse 7, I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, it's clear already from those verses that the core and foundational fellowship that we're talking about in the new heavens and the new earth is a fellowship with God with God. I, I mean, think about it. Think about it. Everything tragic about the fall, the fall of man, Genesis, you know, in Genesis 3, you know, Adam and Eve turning away and really turning the whole race that would come from them away from God, separating us from God. Every, everything tragic about the fall comes as a consequence of, of separation from God. In other words, fellowship severed, uh, relationship uh, broken. Everything tragic about the fall comes from that. It's derived from that. It's a consequence of that. Now, let me give you some examples. The Bible tells us, for example, that God is a God of order, right? God is a God of order, not disorder. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Is it, okay, if God is a God of order, 
Is it any wonder that lives lived apart from God tend toward chaos, don't they? Tend toward, well, what, what people call it, drama, right? Always something, always something catastrophic going on. You know, always something. And that's how it is. You've observed that, right? Lives lived with, you know, the people that, that live in their life and don't have a part for God in it. And, don't, and fellowship with God's not a part of it. That's how it happens. You know, they tend toward chaos, disorder, confusion. The Bible tells us that God is the giver of all good and perfect gifts. James 1.17 God is the giver of all good and perfect gifts. Is it any, if God is the giver of all good and perfect gifts, is it any wonder that those living lives that have no place for God in it, no fellowship with God, it's just not a part of the life, they find in the things in which they sought good, they sought self-benefit, they sought self-interest, they tend toward disappointment, um, unhappiness instead. Uh, on one of our mission trips to Mexico years ago, I got to preach in a, Mex in a Mexican prison. And I got, the whole group went to a Mexican, went to a prison there in Matamoros, or close to Matamoros, Mexico. And, uh, and I got to preach there. But being there, at the, what an eye-opener. What? Uh, well, let me just put it this way. Let's just say, if you ever have to go to prison, go to prison in the United States. You know, go to prison. It's, oh. oh and, and listen, uh, I'm not entirely unacquainted with American prisons, you know, I, or, you know, j jail systems. I, I have visited guests of the government in, uh, at everything from the posh uh, Anderson County Jail, you know, <laughs> uh, which is kind of posh by comparison with the others to the kind of the uh, two-star uh, Morgan County Correctional Facility <laughs> uh, to the truly scary maximum security Brushy Mountain State uh, prison or penitentiary. I can't remember what they called it, but Brushy Mountain, Petros. which was, was rough. <laughs> I saw trustee at, at Brushy, I saw trustees uh, that just to look at them, these prisoners, I couldn't believe there weren't bars between me and that person. You know, I thought, oh no. <laughs> anyway, but the, the prison in Mexico, the, at Matamoros, Mexico, it was enough to scare me straight. You know, at least in Mexico, at least we were in Mexico. You don't want to go there. And I remember making the point to the teens that we uh, brought there, what we brought them there for witness and for prayer, and maybe to scare them straight, I don't know. But, we, uh, but I remember making the point to them that everyone in that prison there, every one of those miserable souls got there by pursuing what they perceived as their self-interest at the time. 
They, they got there by pursuing what they perceived as some good, but of course there was, they had no part for God, apart from fellowship with God. Apart from fellowship with God. I know they were, because if they, you know, fellowship with God doesn't lead to uh, dealing drugs. Uh, fellowship with God doesn't lead to uh, murdering somebody that's just an inconvenient person in your life. So they got there by pursuing some something that they thought they needed, they thought they wanted, something they thought would benefit them, uh, but a, apart from God. He, so here's the point. Broken fellowship with God is the fount of all miseries. And, and of course, we're going, you go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter, chapter 3, here's the biggest issue. And this isn't just an example. This is the crux and the core of the whole human dilemma. Here's what's God. God is the author of life. He's the giver of life, right? He's the inventor of life. And so to turn away from God is to to reject God as God, to go it alone, separated from Him, is to, Genesis 3 teaches, is to turn away from life. To lose life. You know this. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. So you see, as the According to the Bible, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward, but why? The root cause of that, and the root cause of every one of those individual troubles, is our separation from God. One of the absolute wonders of the Bible is how it fits together as, as one, one very intricately woven uh, but, but very unified single story. And I don't mean story in the sense like telling a story like something that didn't happen. It happened. But it's a, it is a story. It is, a, it is an account of, of the history of mankind and, and God's salvation of him. Uh, Although we know, of course, it was written over a period of 1,400 years or so, right? It was written over a period of 1,400 years. It was written by over 40 different authors. And I say over 40 because some authors we don't know. The author of Hebrews. I always, I always catch myself in Hebrews. I want to, he kind of reads like Paul. It reads like the Apostle Paul. But it, and so sometimes I want to say Paul because it sounds like Paul. But there's no, you know, all of Paul's other letters, he says at the beginning, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You know, it doesn't have that. It doesn't have some of the other characteristics of Pauline, of, you know, confirmed Pauline writing. So, you know, so we don't know who wrote Hebrews. You know, we don't know who wrote some other books and things. So, you know, so it's over 40. Over 40. Different continents, different different uh, languages, three different languages. And really, you could say different cultures, too, even. You know, you, 
just different situations. Rich people, poor people, educated people, non-educated people. And yet this, this book, it comes together and it tells one single story. And it has a beginning and it has a plot and it has a turning point and it has a climax and it has a resolution. And, and so have you ever noticed how, how really wonderfully, you know, we sing how marvelous, how wonderful, how marvelous, how wonderful, the, how wonderful it is that the solutions of Revelation 21 and 22, which I've been teaching, is the eternal state, right? Revelation 22 comes after the return of Christ, after the millennial kingdom, after the great white throne judgment, you know, the casting of, of, of Satan and all evil into the lake of fire. What, what's the forever future? And notice that t- Revelation 20, the eternal state, the forever future, answers the problems of Genesis 3, which is the fall of man, the turn, our turning away from God. The plot, here's what it's like. It's like the plot is set in Genesis chapter 3. The plot is resolved in Revelation 21 and 22. The turning point and the climax is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, this this is not really, I think this could be made a list of, of 10 or 15 or 20 things. But here's just a few things. Genesis 3 begins with man being uh, deprived of the tree of life. Revelation 21, 22 gives us back a tree of life. There's a tree of life in it. Genesis 3 gives us, uh, shows us uh, nakedness, sin, guilt, shame. Revelation gives us white robes of righteousness. 22.14 specifically. Genesis talks about pain and multiplied pain. You remember that, ladies? Revelation, specifically, no pain. <laughs> no pain. Genesis, in Genesis, there's a... Uh, a garden that is accessible and vulnerable to the father of lies. You remember him. Revelation, specifically, all liars forbidden uh, access and confined to eternal judgment. Genesis gives us um, the curse on the ground because of man's sin which, you know, really extends to all creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. Revelation 22 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Genesis explains why death has been the bane of all mankind and creation itself. Revelation 21 and 22, the last enemy will have been defeated and death itself will be no more. Genesis introduces us to marriage, which we learn later is a God-ordained picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. Revelation 21 and 22 gives us its fulfillment. 
the bride of Christ, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, as in our passage, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Fellowship with God broken, Genesis 3. Fellowship with God renewed. And I'll say renewed again. Not just recovered, but renewed. Because I maintain that we can see it's, it's the fellowship that's coming is, is better than it ever was. Better than it ever could be. But we see fellowship with God renewed. Also, we didn't read the past day, but Revelation 21, 22, they go together. In 22, 4, it says just in part, they will see his face. God's face. They will see his face. You know, that busy, if you, you know, you're a student of the Bible and you read the Bible, you know, let's just say, let's just admit here, this business of seeing God, uh, in the, it's confusing, isn't it, in the Bible? Yeah, I mean, isn't it? This, that business, this idea of seeing God, it's confusing, I think it is. Because on the one hand, when Moses asks God to show him his glory, you know, Moses says, God, will you show me your glory God says, this Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You remember that? Man shall not see me and, and live. And God, and you know, Exodus 33 goes on, and God puts Moses, you know, he makes a, a counterproposal kind of God, and he says, I'll put you in, in the, by, stand by the rock, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. You know, there's a, one of our hymns about that, right? I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and, and I'll cover you with my hand as I pass by, God says. You'll see my glory, or my glory will pass by. And then he says, I'm going to remove my hand. And it says, this is 3323, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So you have that. You know, no, no man can see Moses. He spoke to God face to face as, one, as a man talks to his friend, right? His face shone because of just being with the Lord. I mean, this man had a relationship with God like, like no one else in his lifetime. Or since, perhaps. And, and, and yet, you know, God says to him, he says, you cannot, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. So you have that in the Bible. But then on the other hand, you have both, in, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old, this expressed hope of seeing God. Psalm 27. I'll read it. Psalm 27, 4. I'll read it to you. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I mean, you can't gaze without seeing, right? To gaze upon the Lord. In, in Job 19, 25-27, the scriptures are on the back of the bulletin, the references here, but, but that's a passage. Job famously expresses, and it's a marvelous thing, because here's Job, this Old Testament saint, and he clearly expresses a hope in resurrection. But when he's doing that, look how he, look how he puts it. This is, this is Job 19, 
He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, that's the hope of resur- in resurrection, yet in my flesh, what? I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. All right, that's Old Testament. New Testament, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what? What do you think it says? See God. Well, I think it's kind of confusing. (laughs) And when you try to factor in the fact that God is spirit, God is spirit. He's not flesh and blood like we have. He's spirit. What can it mean to see God? Colossians 1.15 calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. Well, that confuses me more, right? He's the image of the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.17. To the, it's a little doxology right there at the beginning of, in the first chapter of Timothy. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's confusing. You know, what can it mean to see God who is spirit? But this much seems clear. This, seems, this, this much seems clear. Seeing God speaks of a level and depth, an ultimate level and an ultimate depth of knowing and being in fellowship with, being in relationship with, being close with God. When the Apostle Paul is considering the benefits of either living or dying, he says, for me to live is... You know, he's saying, this is the passage where he said, I don't know which I want to do. I don't know if I want to die or I don't know if I want to live. You remember that passage. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now Paul there, the Apostle Paul there, is not talking about the eternal state. He's not talking about the forever future. He's talking about something that comes before that. He's namely going to heaven when we die. Or, you know, going to heaven when he dies. That's what he's talking about. But what's far, what is far better about it? What's far better about it? Why is it far better? Now, someone might say, and especially those who, you know, who are of the view, and I've been arguing against this view, I've been arguing for something more than this, 
But those who have just have the perception, we die, we go to heaven, we're there forever and ever and ever, and we never, this place is destroyed, we never come back, it has nothing to do with it, the earth or any earth, we're just in heaven forever. But someone of that view might say, well, everything's better about it, everything is better about it. But once again, I just ask, if that were true, why is it that when Jesus returns to the earth, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says he will, why, will, why in the world, no pun intended, why in the world would he bring back with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus if they're in heaven? Like I said, why would he yank them out of heaven and, you know, and bring them back to this old place? First Thessalonians 4 says he will. I think that there in Philippians 1 where he says, my desire is to depart, is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. I think that context tells us exactly what's better about going to heaven. It's being, it's the being with Christ there is far better than the being with Christ here. That's what I think. He tells us. Better to, far better to depart and be with Christ. Because you can be with Christ here, Right? We are, when, like when we worship together. But the being with Christ there is on a different level. It's far better. I mean, you don't, you don't imagine... I mean, think of the Apostle Paul. You don't imagine he was uh, slack in his private prayer life, do you? Did you get that idea reading the New Testament? You know, the, he wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. Do you get an idea that this is kind of, he's kind of lackadaisical about spending time with the Lord, you know, his personal prayer time, his personal, you know, uh, devotional time? I mean, I can't imagine that Paul, the Apostle Paul, left very much on the table at all in terms of an intimate relationship with, with God in his earthly life after he was saved. And yet, he says, being with Christ in heaven is... It's better, far better, than any experience of, of Christ here in this fallen world. And in the new heavens and the new earth, as described in Revelation 22, 4, all the saints, from the greatest of them to the least of them, will see His face. And like I say, I'm confused about it. I don't know what that means exactly. But I do mean, I do think, and I think this has to be right, that we could say every saint from the least of them to the greatest of them will have a closeness and a relationship, you know, and a fellowship with God that is, that is unsurpassed. Hebrews 8 quotes Jeremiah 31 uh, saying, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Just like Revelation 21, right? And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And Revelation 21 and 22 says it this way. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. 
and they will see his face. I, I think the question for us uh, earth dwellers, uh, for we who want to go to heaven someday, but not necessarily today, uh, would be this. Have we come to the realization that our deepest need is for God himself? Uh, have we recognized that our deepest need is not for God's blessings, the things that he can do for us, but for God's fellowship. You know, there are some people who seek God's blessing, who seek his benefits, who seek his favors, but really have little or no interest in knowing God himself. And sometimes those people expect his blessings just as a consequence of his alleged goodness, right? He's supposed to be good, then he should do all this for me. They get mad if he doesn't. But basically, they want the gift and the gifts, but not the giver. Well, the Bible says, tragically, they'll get neither. <laughs> they'll get neither. Or they get some blessings, these common blessings, you know, rain falls on the just and the unjust. But basically what they really, what they want, they, they don't get either. And they need to hear, what, what does someone like that need? They need to hear these words of Jesus before they actually hear them, before Jesus actually speaks them. These frightening words of Jesus where he said, depart from me, I never knew you. And, and some others, this would be even within the Christian realm. Their whole approach to Christian life is as a means to an end. The means being Jesus and Christian faith, the end being health and wealth, uh, you know, happiness, the good life, however defined. And that's correctly called by critics the prosperity gospel, and it's a perversion of Christian faith. What's someone that, what do they need to understand? They need to understand that God is not a mere means to some other end, because ultimately he himself is our deepest need. Augustine prayed, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And it usually takes some spiritual maturity to come to that realization. It, it, it really, it takes some uh, maturing, some, some spiritual maturing, some maturing of faith to realize that our deepest need is for God himself, not for what he can do for us. The psalmist prays, O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Are you there yet? It's a, it's a certain mark of maturity if, you're, if you are. And if you're not there, it's where you want to go. Because it is the truth that he himself is your deepest need. 
a fellowship with Him and a, and a, and a deepening fellowship with Him is our great, and yours and mine too. America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he preached in 1733, and listen to this. He, he preached, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. He's hoping you guys are reasonable creatures, you know, these people in his church. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. S-U-N. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, raindrops, but God is the ocean. Uh, Randy Alcorn in his, writes in his excellent book on heaven. Yeah, you'll find the language more updated. He writes, We may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. A longing that involves not only our inner beings, but our bodies as well. Being with God is the heart and soul of heaven. God's greatest gift to us is and always will be Himself. So what I'm saying is the psalmist... Uh, Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, even Randy Alcorn, these are the great cloud of witnesses calling us upward to, uh, to maturity in our faith. So I'll just ask and end with this. Would it be appropriate for you, as it is for me, to, on the basis of this, a truth, to ask the Lord to deepen our desire for Him. Would that be appropriate? <laughs> it's appropriate for me. To increase our love for Him. To increase our appetite for worshiping Him. So that the impulse of our hearts is to hallow His name as the Lord's Prayer says, before we get to our list of requests. Uh, to not treat Him as a means to temporal ends, but as the answer to our greatest eternal need. To, be, to, to ask Him to make us like Job, who, who, thought, who the devil thought served God only because of the bennies. But the devil was wrong about Job. Job loved the Lord, benefits or no benefits. The Lord, God, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the sort of believers we want to be. That's the sort of believers 
we're going to become. Revelation 21, 22 says so. You're in there. And that's the sort of church we want to have. And that's what we'll be individually. That's what we're going to be together. The bride of Christ who desires nothing more than to be with Him. That where He is, so we will be also. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, uh, Father in heaven and Lord Jesus Christ, teach us each and teach us all to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. May it be not just an aspiration, but a reality. And help us to know that our deepest need is for you yourself. And forgive us for seeking what you can give us and do for us while actually maintaining distance from you. Forgive us for treating you sometimes like a means to an end, a favor machine instead of a person. Purify us that our thinking and living and desires and ambitions would not be dominated by the flesh but be motivated by your indwelling spirit. Increase our desire for you in our private times with you in prayer and our gathering together as we come before you. And thank you that there's coming a time when you will dwell with us we will be your people, sons and daughters of the King, and we'll behold your face forever. Increase faith in every believing heart and grant the beginnings of faith in any who do not know Christ and have not yet secured their place in the world to come. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.